Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. episode 26 of the History Books and Wine podcast. I'm your host for this week, Eliza Knight, USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. Under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses landscapes around the world. The next few podcasts are going to be all about spies, and I've got a fun one for you today, Grace Elliott. But first, what I'm drinking. Tonight, I am drinking a West and Wilder sparkling white wine. It was a bit pricey, $20 for three single-serve cans, but the box of the cans came in was so pretty and peaceful, plus I'd never seen anything, plus I'd never seen that brand before, so I just couldn't resist. It really caught my eye when I walked into the store, and I thought, ooh, I'll try that. Um, There was a lovely quote on the box that said, In every walk with nature, one receives far more than one seeks. And the author of that quote was John Muir. And I cannot agree more with this. I love walks in nature. We just moved last month to a new neighborhood that has so many more walking paths than my old one and I've been out there sometimes three times a day but usually about twice a day I'm taking a walk and I just love it. So we're having a nature wine tonight. From the website, West and Wilder Sparkling White Wine is crisp, elegant, and refreshing. This crisp sparkling white is sunshine in a can and I'll be telling you in a moment if it is. The lively green papaya, jasmine, and lemon lime zest signal refreshment. The majority of fruit for this wine comes from Coastal Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, and Alberino with small touches of Gruner Veltliner <laughs> and Pinot Gris to focus the palate. Pleasingly graceful with its playful and acidity and balance, this wine is delightful to drink and turns heads with its style. So I'm about to open it and I will tell you. Not exactly the sound that one typically hears when they open uh, some wine, but nevertheless. Oh yes, very good. Definitely give it a try. As I said, it was a little pricey, so it's something you might want to splurge on or save it for the weekend for a special night. Um, But in any case, very good. All right, so are we ready to get our spy on? Let's dive into the mysterious history of the lovely Grace Elliott, also in her lifetime called Dolly the Tall. And she was born Griselle Dalrymple, named after her mother, Griselle, around 1754 in Edinburgh, Scotland, one of my favorite cities in the world. But Grace is also connected to another favorite city of mine, Paris, in which she played a role during the French Revolution. Grace was born to an Edinburgh lawyer and his wife, Griselle. When she was young, her parents separated, and we, Griselle, lived with her mother and grandmother until her mother's death in 1767, in which she was sent to be educated in a convent in Paris. Upon her return to Edinburgh in 1771, when Grace was 16 years old, her father arranged her coming out to society, in which she stylized herself as Grace, and she quickly became known as a society beauty, and her height was noted as being quite tall. She had many admirers clamoring for her affections and many other ladies clamoring for her friendship. She was introduced to Dr. John Elliot, a wealthy Scotsman, and a marriage was soon arranged between them. Though many in society found this to be odd, given Elliot was twice Grace's age and shorter than her at about 5'5". Five five. But nevertheless, they were wed on the 19th of October, 1771, in London. They were soon graced with a wee lad of their own, but he died very young. And as a result of this grief and their vast differences, their marriage started to fall 
apart. In 1774, Grace fell into the arms of Lord Valentia, who was only about 10 years older than her and an Irishman. At one time, he had also been an English lord, given his father had titles there, but the House of Lords took these titles away, deeming they were no longer to be used after the death of his father. Suspicious of his wife's infidelity, Dr. Elliot hired an investigator to have the lovers followed, and when he found out the truth of their affair, which happened to be taking place at what may have been a brothel, he sued Valentia quite publicly for criminal conversation, which was the word for adultery back then. He won his suit at a whopping 12000 pounds and a divorce to go with it. Today, that would be over 1.5 million pounds. Quite a lot for an affair, I'd say. But you know what was the worst part about this? Her husband was also likely having an affair. In fact, was suspected of having kept a mistress. Talk about double standards. Where was her 1.5 mil for that? Only about 19 years old at this time, and with her reputation in tatters, Grace was thrust into the disreputable demi-monde class, which referred to those people living a more hedonistic lifestyle. Grace was forced to live her life either as a courtesan or as a pauper. Her brother, however, stepped in and sent her back to a French convent where she might seek some peace, but it was not a peaceful place for a woman disgraced. And in January 1776, Grace was more than happy to be rescued by one of her admirers, Lord Colmondelet, a wealthy British earl of considerable looks and height, who she met at the Pantheon in Paris, wished for her to be his mistress. During her time as his mistress, Thomas Gainsborough painted a lovely portrait of her that is now housed in the Met Museum in New York City. I'll post a picture of this on our podcast social media because the portrait of hers is really stunning. Um, Not only from her features, but also the gown she was wearing. It was a gold silk gown that just like he was able to paint the ripples in and it was just beautiful. So her relationship with the Earl lasted for several years. And in fact, their friendship lasted for a lifetime. And in 1782, she had a short liaison with the Prince of Wales, soon to be styled King George IV. And in that time, she became with child, giving birth to a daughter who was baptized Georgiana Augusta Frederica Seymour. Grace declared the prince to be the father, and he did admit responsibility. However, when he first met his daughter, her complexion was much darker than his, and he claimed that to convince me that this is my girl, they must first prove that black is white. There was another man, Charles William Wyndon, brother of Lord Egremont, who she did resemble, and who did claim paternity as well. Others thought she resembled another man named George Solwyn. Still, her old-time lover, Lord Colmondelet, also claimed she was his child, And interestingly enough, it was this lord, her lover who saved her in Paris, who brought the girl up, Georgiana, as his ward. And when Georgiana passed away at an early age in 1813, he also took in her daughter as his ward. Seems like an awful kindness that he bestowed upon her for a girl and her child, a grandchild perhaps, if it wasn't his own relation. Or he was just a really great guy and he loved Grace so much that he was willing to do this for her. In 1784, the Prince of Wales introduced Grace to the French Duc de L'Orient, who brought her back to Paris and set her up as his mistress. She continued living in Paris even after the outbreak of the French Revolution. Her daughter remained at home with the Earl. She was not interested in politics and was definitely not a Republican, but a Royalist, believing wholeheartedly in kings and queens and having a fondness greatly for Marie Antoinette, who was one of her friends, or who she considered to be a friend. 
On July 14, 1789, the Bastille was stormed by revolutionaries, and just a few days later, Grace found herself to be in grave danger. She decided to visit her jeweler that day, and was stopped along the way by revolutionaries, who were carrying the head of Joseph Foulon de Douy, a French politician and the comptroller of King Louis's finances. His head was on a pike, and they were waving it back and forth and just badgering anyone they could see and, and calling them into their fold to, you know, march this head down the street while they screamed profanities, etc. Swaying and feeling faint at the sight of the grotesque head, Grace might have found herself equally cut short at the neck had it not been for her female companion, an Englishwoman, who proclaimed loudly to the crowd that they were English patriots on the side of the revolutionaries and should be left alone. She would go on to witness the horrors of the September massacres and the body of Princess de Lombard being carried through the streets. This is another story I can't wait to tell on a future podcast because that was just, it was a really horrendous and heinous time and period, very bloody, um, and it being called the Reign of Terror is almost like an understatement. Because of Grace's connections to the Duke of Orleans and several other royals she would have occasional liaisons with, her home was frequently searched by revolutionaries looking for proof of dissent and a way of in which they could order her arrest and uh, execution. So pardon me for a moment while I take a sip of my delicious sparkling. Yummy. What they seemed to miss in these searches most of the time was that Elliot was trafficking correspondence on behalf of the British government and assisting the transportation of messages between Paris and members of the exiled court. It's suggested that these correspondences were disguised as letters to her daughter. However, they did at one point question her on a letter that was addressed to MP Charles James Fox from Sir Godfrey Webster in Naples. This was a letter she'd been tasked with getting out of France and had yet to do so before they intercepted it at her home. In addition to these correspondences, Grace acted as a courier for Marie Antoinette, assisting in the family's preparations to escape France by taking a parcel to a predetermined location. This flight was ultimately unsuccessful for the royal family and is known as the Flight to Varennes and pretty much the beginning of the end for them, if you don't consider what had already happened at the beginning of the end. Acting as a messenger in this way is not a new way of spying or trade for women, certainly not of courtesans, who were easily able to glean information from their lovers, as well as pass messages unseen, as people assumed they were only there to claim the bodies and not information or messages. In addition to being a messenger, Grace Elliot also risked her life in hiding aristocrats being pursued by the revolutionary government. On August 10th, 1792, after the attack on Tolerys Palace, the government governor of the Tuileries, a palace also a prison, was injured and in need of assistance, and he sought out Grace. She worked tirelessly to get him out of the city, but they were thwarted at every turn. She managed to get him back to her house, smuggling him inside. When her house was searched, she allegedly put him between her mattresses and laid atop them, feigning an illness, which got the people searching her home to leave. Later, she would hide him in her attic and arrange for his passage out of France. In addition to helping him get out of France, she also helped several others and was really good, apparently, at falsifying documents that people could use to get their way out of Paris and France altogether. In January of 1793, the king was executed and in her journal that she wrote which was uh, later published um, after she passed away she wrote this the day of the king's death was the most dreary day i ever saw the clouds even seemed to mourn nobody dared appear or at least look at each other the cruel jacobins themselves seemed to fear each other's reproach i was shut up all day i heard nothing from paris nor did i wish to hear i dreaded the idea of ever going there again from that period everything bespoke terror robespierre became all-powerful people did not dare to speak above their breath two people the most intimate would not have dared to stop and speak in short even in your own rooms you felt frightened 
If you laughed, you were accused of joy at some bad news that the Republic had had. If you cried, they said you regretted their success. In short, they were sending soldiers every hour to search houses for papers of conspiracies. These soldiers generally robbed people and made them give them money, threatening them in case of refusal to denounce them. That's a pretty good description of how the terror felt. You were just scared, scared to be in your own home and say anything, say anything to the person standing beside you that someone might be listening from a window or a door or through the wall somehow. She helped people and she did this for several years, but several months after the king's execution in 1793, her luck was coming to an end and Grace was arrested and imprisoned and a writ of her execution was actually written for her royalist sympathies and suspicions of helping that Marquis escape France. She remained imprisoned until the death of Robespierre, who was sort of the father of the terror. And that was in the summer of 1794. So a little over a year that she was in prison. And it was four different prisons that she ended up finding herself in. So traveling from place to place and every day wondering if the next day was going to be her last. She watched uh, friends of hers die, heard of the deaths of friends. She would later write about the deprivation of humanity, the torment of those in the prison, and the fear, just the all-around fear, like what I just read to you a moment ago from her journal. She also claims in her journal that she was able to meet Josephine, who would later become Napoleon's wife, while they were imprisoned together at Carmitz. It was upon her release that Grace fled back to England and wrote her memoir, Journal of My Life During the French Revolution, which is seen as one of the most incredible memoirs of that time of someone who lived there from their own words. However, it was um, heavily edited, apparently, by her daughter during the Victorian era. So some of the things that she might have said in relation to her position as a courtesan of many men seems to probably have been edited out or at least tamed down quite a bit to keep her mother's reputation. Though she returned to England. She did not stay there for the rest of her life. <laughs> Several years later, she ended up returning to France, where there were rumors that Napoleon wanted her to be his wife, and whether or not she ended up having an affair with him is not on record. When she passed away in May of 1823, she was living just outside of Paris, quite comfortably, as the mistress of a local mayor. So that is the history of Grace Elliott, Dolly the Tall. And it's quite fascinating what she was able to accomplish and her desire to return to a place where she saw so much death and destruction. I guess she just really loved that country. Let us all give cheers to Grace and her badassery and guts and just her diligence and her fearlessness. Not being a French citizen, she could have fled back to England at any moment, but she stayed to help people, to protect them, to do what she could. And I think that that is just seriously incredible. So cheers, Grace. Now let's move on to the part of the podcast where I talk about what I'm reading this week. This week, I am leaping into a thriller. I'm about halfway through it. I haven't finished it quite yet. It's a book my sister was reading while we were at the beach last week, and she let me borrow it when she finished. So far, it's really good, and it is called An Unwanted Guest by Sherry Lapina. A weekend retreat at a cozy mountain lodge is supposed to be the perfect getaway, but when the storm hits, no one is getting away. It's winter in the Catskills and Mitchell's Inn, nestled deep in the woods, is the perfect setting for a relaxing, maybe even romantic, weekend away. It boasts spacious old rooms with huge wood-burning fireplaces, a well-stocked wine cellar, yeah, and opportunities for cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, or just curling up with a good murder mystery. So when the weather takes a turn for the worse and the blizzard cuts off the electricity and all contact with the outside world, the guests settle in and try to make the best of it. 
Soon, though, one of the guests turns up dead. It looks like an accident. But when a second guest dies, they start to panic. Within the Snowden paradise, something or someone is picking off the guests one by one. And there's nothing they can do but hunker down and hope they can survive the storm and one another. I just love a good thriller. That one, it's definitely, it's definitely started off pretty much from the first sentence, keeping me on my edge of my seat. A book of mine. The Highlander's Quest is the one I chose for you guys this week, which is a novella that I wrote based on the daughter of my heroine in The Highlander's Warrior Bride. In this book, my heroine takes after her mother's trade, which is spying and serving as a bodyguard. She's pretty cool. My description of this uh, novella is short and sweet, just like the story. Lady Julia's mission is to protect the young boy king. Sir Alistair has uncovered a plot to destroy Scotland. Together, they must fight a powerful enemy who hides behind a traitorous veil of secrecy. So, this week's question from readers is how do we come up with our topics each month some of our topics are suggested to us by listeners and some of them we come up with in our own research where we're like oh i would love to find out more about this person or oh this is a topic that i really love let's explore it more everything that we've talked about well first of all we here at history books and wine are major history nerds in case you didn't realize that already but um we just we're fascinated by pretty much every aspect of history so we get pretty pumped about it and come up with quite a few ideas that we have to filter through before we pick the one that we're going to go with that month Um, and then we typically break it down where we each take a, a topic based on that topic you know for example we're doing spies right now i'm doing a spy Madeline and Lori are each going to do a spy. And then at the end of the month, we're going to come together for our, our happy hour and have a big discussion on spies. So that's pretty much how we do it. And if you have an idea, you're always welcome to email us and tell us something that you've been always wanting to know, and we'll be happy to add it into our rotation. So my question for you all is, have you ever thought about spying? What about on a sibling, a neighbor, your coworker? <laughs> we all spy sometimes, even if we're just sitting at a Starbucks, minding our own business while casually listening in on the very intense and dramatic conversation next door. Come on, you know you've done it. Admit it. We all have. So if you have any questions for us please email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We are now on Spotify, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about some of these amazing, fun historical tidbits. Thank you so much for tuning in. And be sure to check out new episodes weekly published on Thursdays. Next up is Madeline on August 15th, talking about Matahari. Lori on August 22nd will discuss Casanova. Who knew he was a spy? Seriously, that's awesome. And our next happy hour is on August 29th. And we're going to be dishing on all things spy related. We're talking gadgets, duties of a spy, sneakiness. It's going to be so much fun. So I hope you all have an amazing week.